Hey everyone, welcome back to Wiki University, the podcast that dives down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia to explore the sum of all human knowledge. I am your professor and dean of this fine, fine institution, extremely prestigious institution. My name's Kyle Berseth. As always, I'm joined by our head of the class here at WikiU, the number one student, the guy that's always asking for homework, Jason Nunez. Thank you so much, Professor. You're welcome. Class is in session. But first and foremost, thank you guys for liking, subscribing, wherever you're listening to this podcast. And please remember to leave that sweet old five-star review. And it won't hurt to leave a comment or two talking about how sexy these boys are. Whoa. <laughs> Call them men for the comments. You might get flagged. And now class is in session. Oh, I'll flag you if you <laughs> oh, don't yeah. review us. Okay, Jason. This is another rapid fire up here. Pew, 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 pew. Hell yeah. I got my guns ready. I'm cocked, locked, and ready to rock. And since you're head of the stupidity department, yes. uh, you did not bring a topic to class. Yes. So it is landing on me again mm. to provide some jumping off point. Yeah, and it sounds pretty stupid to me, too, so that's why I, I made it happen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're doing your part. Okay, so uh, let's dive in here let's do it. to the ball pit of Wikipedia. I hold my breath. Now, you don't have to hold your breath in a ball pit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> here is the topic that I am bringing, and I'm, I looked up the pronunciation of it, and I might still screw it up. Because I, I'm dabbling in the stupidity department today. Yeah, you, touch, you dip your toes in there here and there. So the topic is prosopagnosia. Prosopagnosia. Close enough. What, Maybe what, even better. What is, what, what is that? Is that a... It sounds like a psychosis type of um, Close. phobia. Yeah, perhaps. it's science-y. No phobia, because that usually ends in phobia. phobia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, or a condition, perhaps a condition. A condition. I think that's pretty good. Mm. Um, it says here it's a cognitive disorder. So it's comes from a Greek word meaning face. Cognitive. Oh. Prosopon means face, and agnosia meaning non-knowledge. Prosopagnosia, also called face blindness, is a cognitive disorder of face perception in which the ability to recognize familiar faces including one's own face, no, is impaired, while other aspects of visual processing and intellectual functioning remain intact. The term originally referred to a condition following acute brain damage, but a congenital or developmental form of the disorder also exists with a prevalence of 2.5%. The brain area usually associated with prosopagnosia is the fusiform gyrus, which activates specifically in response to faces. Wow. Sometimes they look in the mirror and they're like, ah, who is that? Whoa, who's that creep looking at me? Oh, it me. It me. <laughs> <laughs> they have to write on their mirror, it, it you. Me. It me, or it you. <laughs> it me, yeah. Don't scared it you. Don't scared it you. <laughs> He wakes up every, and it, or, he puts, she. or she makes it like an extra step because they write it on the mirror 
and then they have to like wait until the 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 bathroom steams up for them to <laughs> see the message. It's like a horror film every day right. to start with. It's like where the they're Adam becoming Sa- somewhere else. It's like Fifty, 50 First, first dates. dates. Yeah, but of faces, of faceless Fifty First Dates. Yeah, Fifty First Faces. I do wonder. Say they've got a wife or a husband, and they wake up every day. Mm. How bad is it? Appreciate. Uh, a Sign it out. Sign it. I'm here. I'm a here. perceptive. Propopagnosia has typically been used to describe cases of acquired propopagnosia with some of the earliest processes in the face perception system. The brain area is thought to play a critical role in apperceptive propopagnosia. We're going to call it AP for my pronunciation purposes. Our right occipital temporal regions. People with this disorder cannot make any sense of faces And are unable to make same different judgments when they are presented with pictures of different faces. So they just see one face. It's like an elementary school kid just draw a smile, a (laughs) nose, and two dots for an eye. That's what they see on everybody. Yeah, if that person was a witness to a crime and they'd be explaining uh, to the artist, to the police artist, (laughs) the police artist would just, again, like you said, draw out just a happy face smile. A stick figure. You know, it looked like a face. <laughs> uh, the killer had a face. It's probably the people with that. Do they see color? That's a good question. Mm, do they see pigment? They're unable to recognize both familiar and unfamiliar faces. In addition, AP subtypes of this struggle recognizing facial emotion. So it's not just a smiley face. It's just a straight, straight line. Weird. However, they may be able to recognize people based on non-face clues such as their clothing, hairstyle, skin color, or voice. So they can tell hairstyle, skin color, other differences. Probably makeup, Just not the most defining feature. Right. (laughs) Just just the thing that makes people different. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so here's another type. This is associative prosopagnosia. So another AP. Okay. So we're just going to call all these types APs. Yeah. Level one, level two. It's been typically used to describe cases with spared perceptual. For sure. The peas trip me up. (laughs) That's what I says. It's been used to describe cases with spared. Perceptual processes, but impaired links between early face perception processes and the semantic information humans hold about people in our memories. Right anterior temporal regions may also play a critical role in this version. People with this form of the disorder may be able to tell whether photos of people's faces are the same or different and derive the age and sex from a face, suggesting that they can make sense of some face information, but may, may not be able to subsequently identify the person or provide any information about them, such as their name, occupation, or when they were last encountered. So this sounds kind of like the bouncer issue. The, the bouncer, which is what they call it, the bouncer issue. The bouncer issue, <laughs> right. yeah. 
These scientists need to... Okay, here we go. Ooh, Here's a third type. I know it's special. You touch my shoulder. <laughs> Developmental prosopagnosia, DP. Mm. Yes. Is a face recognition deficit that is lifelong manifesting in early childhood and that cannot be attributed to acquired brain damage. While developmental DP begins early in life, many people do not realize that they have DP until later in their adult lives. It has been suggested that a genetic factor is responsible for the condition. The term, quote-unquote, hereditary propopagnosia was introduced if DP affected more than one family member. Essentially, oh man, what a terrible family reunion. <laughs> you just got a bunch of people with DP. <laughs> They're all it's just the same amount, same faces all around. Yeah. It's almost like a scary movie. Oh yeah. You show up to the family reunion and everybody just has generic mouth, nose, and eyes. <laughs> Which is another name for this syndrome. Generic mouth, nose, and eyes syndrome. What I picture that those people that have this C is like when someone puts that tan colored sock that they have at shoe stores. Oh yeah. You know the, the old bank the robber stocking. sock. Yeah, the, yeah stocking. the lady stocking. The lady stocking, yeah. <laughs> That's what I picture that they see, like that face of just like, you know, you just see like a a, a nose. Kind mouth. of a yeah. Not a lot of a you know, that's the whole purpose, right? It blocks your face. Yeah, yeah. It would be so easy to rob these people. <laughs> you don't even <laughs> need you don't even need the sock. Now, this is rapid fire, so we can't spend too much time on here. Talking about stockings and stuff. But we got diagnosis treatment. So I don't know what treat. Oh, all right. Let me read the treatment part. There are no widely accepted treatments. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) the doctor, you go in, you say, I can't identify faces. I don't know who you are right now. And the doctor goes, tough shit. (laughs) And there's notable people. Okay, that had this. Hmm. That had or have it. Brad Pitt, American actor and film producer, has this. To what level? To what degree? All right, I'm going to go to Brad Pitt. Okay. Heartthrob, Brad Pitt, who has no idea that he's good looking. (laughs) Zero clue this Only that people have told him. He's like, I'm sexiest man alive this year. Again? What? But my face is so plain. <laughs> Everybody looks like me. Personal life. I assume maybe it would be under personal life, right? Sounds pretty personal. Whoa. Okay. I haven't read this about Brad Pitt. So we're getting off of the DP and CP. Uh, AP? AP and DP. Mm-hmm. In September. We're getting into BP. We're getting into BP yeah. and his dirt. Oh, no. Which, He's dirty? I like Brad Pitt. What are your feelings? I like on him? me a little. Gr- I like me a little grimy Pitt. I love Pitt. You love Pitt. Big fan. Every movie he's in, I'm like, kills it. He's a great actor. Yeah, Legends yeah. of the Fall. Ooh, my favorite. In September 2016, the FBI and the Los Angeles Department of Children and Family Services investigated Pitt for child abuse. Following an incident on a plane where Pitt was accused by an anonymous person of being, quote-unquote, verbally abusive and physical towards one of his children. In its final report... Go verbal all you want. 
but we stop at physical. In its final report on the investigation, the Los Angeles County Department of Children and Family Services ruled that Pitt did not physically abuse any of his children. Oh, okay. Done. Sealed. Pitt was also cleared by the FBI of any wrongdoing. I'm glad we Does the FBI always get involved for child? Celebrities. Oh, for celebrities. Celebrity kids, yeah. (laughs) The FBI gets called in. Bringing the big guns for the celebrity kids. For sure. Um... Here's another thing I didn't know about Brad Pitt. And again, I'm just reading the headlines. He's here. more good looking than we thought. There's a, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. Turns Whoa. out I can't recognize faces either. Oh, no. No. <laughs> you have DP. Oh, oh, I just got diagnosed. What's the treatment? No treatment. <laughs> oh, no. Well, there's nothing widely accepted. Is there anything that like maybe one person accepts? So there's a section alcoholism. Oh, yeah, huge alcoholic. Brad Pitt? Yeah. Really? You can see it in those blue eyes. How does he keep those blue eyes so not bloodshot? The alcohol. Oh, the alcohol yeah. clears up the eyes. <laughs> yeah, clear eyes. In September 2016, Pitt got sober and began attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. That's great. Doesn't sound super anonymous <laughs> since it's here on Wiki. In December 2019, he wrote an article for Interview which is a magazine, I guess, in which he talked with his Legends of the Fall and Meet Joe Black co-star and fellow fellow recovering alcoholic Anthony Hopkins about their experiences with addiction and recovery. Huh. I had no idea about Brad Pitt being a raging alcoholic. I mean, raging. Is he still raging? Did he go back? Did he go off the wagon? Oh, I don't... Maybe on that plane. <laughs> Okay, so here we are with prosopagnosia. Full Ooh. circle here. Yeah. In 2022, Pitt said that he had struggled for years to recognize people's faces due to face blindness other than tens. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, I didn't talk to anyone. I only see if tens. If people said hi to me and they weren't a 10, just didn't. Didn't even know. Ah, face blindness. Yeah. It was face blindness. In a 2013 interview, he said that his inability to recognize people's faces had become so severe that he often wanted to stay home. Formerly, oh, formally, however, Pitt has not been diagnosed with prosopagnosia. That must be rough being Brad Pitt. It has to be. Oh, so hard. So, I mean, everyone wants more and more of him. There's only so much to give. So much Pitt. Not enough time. Pitt has admitted to using cannabis in the late 1990s as a way to deal with his increasing fame. According to Pitt, quote-unquote, I was hiding out from the celebrity thing. I was smoking way too much dope. I was sitting on the couch and just turning into a donut. He reduced his cannabis use and focused on his work after a trip to Morocco where he witnessed extreme poverty and suffering. Mm, I would have thought that would increase cannabis use. What? How so? To deal with the knowledge of all this extreme poverty and suffering. No, I think uh, after having done that, he saw that the worry about being a celebrity isn't that big of a worry at all. Oh, like the struggles of yeah, his okay. newfound glory or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> his newfound, do you want to go to the band Newfound, newfound Glory? glory? <laughs> Let's do it. We're going rapid fire. What, uh, what song did they uh, sing? I don't know. I'm sure like Brad Pitt some... has a band. Does he not? He has. That we band. moved on from bad, Brad, bad, bad bit. 
It sounds like he was a bad pit. Bad pit. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like he's been a bad pit. I don't know if he's still. Time. I mean, it depends if he's still a raging alcoholic. He's not. Oh, he's not. He got he got sober in 2016. That's cool. I like him because he keeps quiet about uh, himself. I didn't know any of that. Matthew McConaughey is now turning into like a motivational speaker. Is he really? Yeah, yeah. He's coming out with these like YouTube videos of quotes sometimes they're not even like long they're not like oh an hour speech or anything they're like 30 seconds and he just says like a couple sentences he starts with <laughs> I, I know one was just like you know what i hate the word unbelievable how can something be unbelievable just believe it and do it <laughs> what? I'm uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel this morning. If I ever said unbelievable around my grandfather, he would just go, I don't believe it. Classic grandpa. That's classic grandpa humor. That's another level of dad humor. Yeah, that's the next level. Yeah. <laughs> and if he ever saw a female cop, he would go, oh, it's a dickless Tracy. <laughs> Classic, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to her face. To her face. <laughs> yeah. That he didn't recognize. Oh, no. So we are on the band Newfound Glory. Oh, yeah. When did they peak? Formerly A Newfound Glory. Is an American Wait, rock? When did they drop the A? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a great idea. Well, that worked back then because if you're A Newfound Glory... You're in the A's, baby. You're coming oh, up first. Oh, yeah. You're at the record shop. Alphabetically, exactly. Shop. Yep. The CD shop. The I'm c- going to go down to the CD shop, also known as Best Buy. <laughs> Don't wait up for me tonight, Mom. <laughs> I'm going to the CD shop. <laughs> CD shop. Okay. New- <laughs> hey, man. Earlier in this episode, you mentioned getting stockings at a shoe shop. So <laughs> right next to the CD shop. It's a shoe shop. In our brains, both of us are living in like small town America. Oh yeah, there's, there's one shop, shop has one item. That's all. It's exactly. just a bunch of shops. <laughs> so Newfound Glory is is an American rock band from Coral Springs, Florida, formed in 1997. The band currently consists of some dude, some dude, some dude, and some dude. Longtime rhythm guitarist and lyricist, some dude left the band in 2013. During their lengthy recording career, the band have released 10 studio albums, one live album, two EPs, and four cover albums. Oh, a covey. After forming in 1997, Newfound Glory released their debut studio album, Nothing Gold Can Stay, in 1999. The band then released their self-titled major label debut in 2000 with the album's song Hit or Miss peaking at number 15 uh, on the Alternative Songs chart. I don't remember hit or miss. I don't remember either. I don't know that I know I don't any. Even know, I only know one song, and I can't even remember it. It sounds like you don't remember any of their songs. Well, I just I know that band because I remember there was at least one song that was like very... I'm sure if we heard it, we'd know it. Peaking at number 15 in 2002, the b- band became mainstream with their album Sticks and Stones and the album's hit My Friends Over You. I still don't it's not ringing that. a bell. 
We should move on, man, because this is just listing songs we don't know about. <laughs> Which, you know, this is a podcast about learning. You did get excited about Newfound Glory, so I thought that was like your band. No Found Glory for me. No Found Glory. Emerging as part of the second wave of pop punk in the late 1990s, music critics considered them a key pioneer of the genre. Often labeled the godfathers of pop punk, all music notes how their raucous, fast-paced anthems carried them through the decades, whilst crediting them for practically serving alongside the work of Blink-182 as a blueprint for the entire genre of the early 2000s. So they had an impact. I would no Blink One Eighty Two is way better. You don't even know. Maybe maybe you do like New Found Glory better. No, because I would know their songs. I know a couple of Blink One Eighty Two songs. I ju- yeah, I do too. But the, I think it's just because they were maybe catchier, but pretty. All the small things. <laughs> I hate that, that was- song. <laughs> hate it, but it. I know it. I hate it, but I know it. You know which one I like is that. She left uh, me roses by the sand. I, yeah, I don't like Someone that one. Who went hand. Yeah, I don't even know. I don't know the words, but I know some of them. Hmm. Alternative press have praised the group for their innovative and entirely irresistible fusion of punk melodies and hardcore breakdowns. As such, the band are considered highly influential in the development of this subgenre, easycore. What's hardcore breakdown? Okay, so I'm going to Hardcore Breakdowns, and it took me to Hardcore Punk. Punk. It's a punk rock music genre and subculture that originated in the late 1970s. It is generally faster, harder, and more aggressive than other forms of punk rock. Mm. Its roots can be traced to earlier punk scenes in San Francisco and Southern California, which arose as a reaction against the still-prominent hippie culture climate of the time. It was also inspired by Washington, D.C. and New York punk rock and early proto-punk. Hardcore punk generally disavows commercialism, the established music industry, and quote-unquote anything similar to the characteristics of mainstream rock, and often addresses social and political topics with confrontational, politically charged lyrics. Um, about the what, what about Washington D.C. Did the did the punk culture? I went to the main article for Washington D.C. hardcore. Washington D.C. hardcore, commonly referred to as D.C. hardcore, sometimes referred to in writing as hardcore, like hard with a capital D and core mm. with a capital C only in writing only in writing hard yeah if you say it core. you have you have to go hard hard, hard core. core so then they really hard don't core. get it i am here to do a hardcore punk it's the hardcore punk scene of Washington D.C. emerging in the in late 1979. It is considered one of the first and most influential punk scenes in the United States. Okay. Punk in Washington D.C. found its origins in the district's former centers of 1960s counterculture. Georgetown University became a key location due to its heavy student population and student radio station WGTB. Can you imagine knowing what you know about Georgetown now? To me, Georgetown is like button up, sport coats almost, just... Yeah, a little, little bit more little wealthy, uptight. a little uptight. 
And to know that that area was prominent punk. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. The station was run under little hmm. supervision from the university administration and therefore became a voice in the early 1970s for cultural radicalism that had faded since the end of the 1960s. DuPont Circle, becoming more known for its diverse and LGBT-inclusive community, also became important, as well as socially restless Adams Morgan. Always restless. Socially. Always social. Yeah, it's been restless forever. Mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. first saw touring punk bands such as the Ramones in 1976. D.C.'s punk scene emerged that year with groups like the Slicky Boys and Overkill, who were soon joined by the Look, the Controls, the Raz, White Boy, Urban Verbs, the Shirkers, the Penetrators, True Facts, and the Insaniacs, and others. Insaniacs, that's cool. That's we're Insaniacs. We have baloney in our slacks. slacks. Yeah, yeah, that was love- their hit. <laughs> Except it was like, we're insaniacs. We We have baloney in our slacks. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here you go. The hub of it all. The Atlantis, located in the rear room of the Atlantic Building's ground floor at 930 F Street Northwest, was a short-lived venue, but was significant in the development of the punk scene. That's where the 930 Club is. is. Yeah. Yeah. The first D.C. venue to host, although I think the maybe some of those buildings now are luxury condos. Definitely. Oh, man, it went so punk. Very punk, to the nth degree. (laughs) The first D.C. venue to host primarily punk and new wave bands, the Atlanta's first punk concert featured the Slicky Boys, Urban Verbs, and White Boy on January 27th, 1978. By early 1979, the Atlantis had closed but the space would reopen under new ownership on May 31st, 1980 as the nightclub 930, soon known as the 930 Club, and serve as an important part of the DC punk scene's foundation. When The Faith put out the EP Subject to Change in 1983, it marked a critical evolution in the sound of the DC hardcore and punk music in general. All music writer Steve Huey described their music as hinting at what was to come, softening the standard issue hardcore approach somewhat with better developed melodies and a more inward looking perspective. Punk got sensitive. Yeah, a little new age punk. Okay, this took shape under the name Revolution Summer in the summer of 1985. I'm going to go to Revolution Summer. Revolution Summer was a social movement within the hardcore punk scene of Washington, D.C. that occurred during the summer of 1985. From the late 1970s through the 80s, D.C. was a thriving hardcore punk community, blah, blah, blah. Bad Brains were an early influence on the speed of hardcore punk, and Straight Edge came to fruition in the wake of Minor Threat. By 1984, the scene was awash in violence. Skinheads came to hardcore punk concerts in D.C. just to fight. Shows devolved into vandalism. The tight-knit community around Discord Records, who helped create the scene, decided to leave it and create a new alternative music scene in the city. 
this scene was to be more aware of the sexism of the traditional punk scene, embraced animal rights and vegetarianism, and was in opposition to moshing and violence at concerts. Anti-mosh. Anti-mosh. Let's go to moshing. Keep it safe. I want to see where moshing started. I I tell you where it ended with deaths. Revolution summer. Yeah. No, No, it didn't end with that. No, it's... Moshing leads to crushing. Yeah. Or sometimes fighting, then crushing. I think... What's uh, the order? Like a chicken or the egg situation. No, you don't start with crushing. Something always happens before crushing. Pushing, shoving, moshing, punching, crushing. I think that's the stages of grief. (laughs) (laughs) If you get crushed, yes. Moshing is an extreme style of dancing in which participants push or slam into each other, typically performed to aggressive live music. All right, let's go. Oh, the dance style originated in the hardcore punk scenes of California and Washington, D.C. around 1980. Hmm. I wonder if it's kind of like the pyramids in Mexico versus Egypt. Did they kind of happen separate of each other? Interesting, Or did the moshing happen... uh, you know, did some people from California go to D.C. or vice versa and mosh it up on both? Did Mexicans go to Egypt? The Egyptians go to Mexico? Or is it just aliens spreading all this information? Right. The term mosh came into early use in the 1980s American hardcore scene in Washington, D.C. Early on, the dance was frequently spelled mash in fanzines. So like is that magazines, magazines for fans? for fans. And record liner notes, but pronounced mosh as in the 1982 song Total Mash by the D.C.-based hardcore band Scream. Um, What? I'm confused. I'm confused, too. So it was called mash, but they pronounced it mosh. Kind of maybe British. So they just... Right. Uh, Okay. Oh, yeah. It was a a total mosh. A total... A total mosh. Total mosh. Total mosh. Oh, wait. Here it is. Oh. So Bad Brains is regarded as the band that put moshing on the map, Mm. used the term mash in lyrics and in concert stage banter to both incite and to describe the aggressive and often violent dancing of the scene to quote unquote mash it up was to go wild with the frenzy of the music Due to his Jamaican-accented pronunciation of the word, fans heard this as mosh mm. instead. We're doing some big-time moshing. Ma- mosh. I see it now. Okay. Mosh now. that now. I've really botched the accent, I, I kind of mosh. understand it. Oh, mosh, shall we? We should mosh now. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait, Jamaican Bane. Jamaican oh, Bane. Bane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We are. Mosh. Mosh. You've got to mosh up the goat stew, man. (laughs) (laughs) We shall mosh now. (laughs) Okay. The first dance identifiable as moshing may have originated in Orange County, California during the first wave of American hardcore. Examples of this early moshing can be seen in the documentaries Another State of Mind, Urban Struggle, The Decline of Western Civilization, and American Hardcore. That's a lot of documentaries about the first wave of hardcore. That was multiple? I thought that was the name of one long documentary. 
No, seen in the documentaries, another state of mind, urban struggle, the decline of Western civilization, and American hardcore. I thought it was going to be another state of mosh. As well as, <laughs> that would have been a great name. Yeah. Do you want to go somewhere else here, Jason, or do you want to wrap it up? Let's wrap it up with one more. Okay, well, I see, see also. Th- Ooh, and, and what is, do you see? This is a little too close, maybe, because we just covered moshing. Close to home? But I see headbanging, crowd surfing, skank which is a type of dance, stage diving, any of those? Would you stage dive? Oh, I would stage dive, yeah. If I could stage dive and know that people would catch me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People will catch you. I mean, you're, you're, you're light. You're That's light true. Your feet. Even if yeah, you... It would take like two people to catch me. <laughs> yeah, great. Plus, would you li- I would like it because it's almost like getting a little massage on the way. Touch all the parts. Oh yeah, I'd yeah. be like, let me go again. Like I'll run back to the stage while you're holding me. Give me a little, give a little squeeze with yeah. your fingers. Now, would you go backside or frontside first? I'm going backside because I'll do I'll do both sides. Although frontside, I feel like there's less risk of spinal injury. Frontside? Yeah, if you dive face first. Oh, you also don't want to dive though. I know they call it a stage dive, but yeah. you're not really diving, right? You're kind of more like. You're going spread eagle, if anything, because you want the, as much mass as possible for people to grab you. You know, that's a really good point because... Thank you. You're welcome. I went canyon diving once in Switzerland. Whoa, okay. And they tie a rope to you around the... the uh, you're wearing a harness, but they tie a rope to you, and you you dive into the canyon, and you swing like a pendulum. And the tip they said is if you want to do a classic spread eagle dive, you actually want to jump up. Otherwise, you'll go out and flip. So Mm. I think if you were to do a stage dive front facing, you want to go up. Right, right. And at the very least, if people fail to catch you, you'll kind of be able to land on your feet a little bit better than if you dive out. Right. Like you're trying to Superman it. Exactly. Because you ain't Superman. Well, oh right, right. But you gotta, you want to land in the Superman right position, that's, so that's where you yeah. gotta go up. Yeah, y- correct. And I, so uh, that's interesting. You already knew that, of course. Not of course. I don't think that's how. But how would somebody, Jason? I'll tell you. <sighs> I've seen it because then we went canyon diving. Yeah. And this is after they said jump up, not out. They're telling everybody. They're, They're telling yeah. everybody. So even after having all this knowledge of yeah. jumping up, not out, he jumps out. He does a full flip, full rotation. So is it like a bungee thing? Or no, it's a rope. It's but a because rope. it's so the we could go to canyon diving and wrap it up. Let's here. wrap it up with canyon diving. Okay. No idea what that is. How do you? I mean, it's in a canyon. I can gather. So we are going to canyon diving. If there's a wiki article, it's got to be. No page. Some no page with this title. And some sort of base jumping, I feel like. Free diving. The 1956 Grand Canyon Midair Collision. Ooh, is that a wiki? That's a wiki. You want to go to that? Yeah. Okay, so 1956 Grand Canyon Midair Collision. This mid-air. doesn't sound like it's going to go well for the people flying. The Grand Canyon midair collision occurred in the western United States on Saturday, June 30th, 1956, when a United Airlines Douglas DC-7 struck a TWA Lockheed, these sound like big planes, over the Grand Canyon National Park, Arizona. All 128 on board both airplanes perished, 
making it the first commercial airline incident to exceed 100 fatalities. Damn. The airplanes had departed Los Angeles International Airport minutes apart for Chicago and Kansas City. Wait, so these two planes were going, leaving, both leaving LAX, both to different different places, and they crashed into each other? Midair. Wow. They got all that air up there. The air up there. It's Michael Jordan's biography. <laughs> I thought it was the Kevin Bacon film from the 90s. What what Kevin Bacon movie was I he? I thought there was a Kevin Bacon movie where he goes to Africa to recruit like an eight-footer. or No, a seven-footer. A seven-footer. And I think it was called like The Air Up There or something like that. Was it? I don't know. I don't Man, remember. Let's I, do it. I'm, Dis- going, Di- I'm Disney- going back to this article. All right. Disney's The Air Up There? The Air Up There is a 1994 American sports film directed by Paul Michael Glazer and starring Kevin Bacon. Oh, you found it. The Air Up There. Yeah. The Air Up There. Jimmy Dolan. With Bacon? Is- with Bacon. Starring? Starring Jimmy Dolan is a college basketball assistant coach who wants to find a new star for his team since he believes this will get him a promotion to head coach at the school. He sees a home video of a prospect named Sala and travels to Kenya to recruit him. Upon arriving in the country, Dolan finds himself confronted not only with the challenges of basketball, but also with the challenges of adjusting to and learning how to live in the midst of a brand new culture. Budget was seventeen million. Box office was twenty-one million. A young Kyle Berseth found it quite entertaining in nineteen ninety-four, whenever it came out on video. Wow, I had no idea Bacon even was in this production. Bacon's been in everything. I obviously he's that's the why, other white meat. That, <laughs> that's where there's that game, Six Degrees, right? Exactly. Okay, so we are back on the Grand Canyon midair collision. All one hundred and twenty-eight on board both planes perished. Uh, They were both leaving from LAX. One was going to Chicago, one to Kansas City. The collision took place in uncontrolled airspace where it was the pilot's responsibility to maintain separation, also known as seen and be seen. This highlighted the antiquated state of air traffic control, which became the focus of major aviation reforms. So I guess you get over like a big national park or maybe all of Arizona. I don't know. <laughs> and they're like, you're on your own out there. Sky's too big to possibly crash into another plane. Wow. And they just happened to... what? Okay, so one was going to Chicago. The other was going where? Kansas City. And they just happened to be... They had taken the exact same route? Yeah, I guess so. So... Here's the collision. At about 10.30 a.m., the two aircraft collided over the canyon at an angle of about 25 degrees. Post-crash analysis determined that the United DC-7 was banking to the right and pitching down at the time of the collision, suggesting that one or possibly both of the United pilots spotted the TWA constellation and attempted evasive action. This was back when... And probably still now, but when all these people were like former Air Force pilots, probably. Okay. So they were doing some moves up there trying to avoid They were learning and burning. Is that what it is? Turning and burning. Oh, turning and burning. Turn and burn. Turn around and I'll burn you. The DC-7's upraised left wing clipped the top of the Constellation's vertical stabilizer and struck the fuselage immediately ahead of the stabilizer's base. 
causing the tail assembly to break away from the rest of the airframe. You need that tail. The propeller on the DC-7's left outboard or number one engine concurrently chopped a series of gashes into the bottom of the Constellation's fuselage. You don't want to gash up your fuselage. Jesus. I mean, this sounds like uh, something from Con Air. Worst case, yeah. Explosive decompression would have instantaneously occurred from the damage, a theory substantiated by light debris such as cabin furnishings and personal effects being scattered over a large area. Oh, so I assume that has that to do just... with the pressurization in the cabin. And ex- let's let's see what explosive decompression is or uncontrolled decompression is an unplanned drop in the pressure of a sealed system, such as an aircraft cabin. So that's like classic when something in the movies, when a door opens and everything gets sucked out. They weren't ready for it. Right. So the separation of the tail assembly from the constellation, so the whole tail of the plane got sheared off. Wow. From the the wing. From the wing, I believe. From the other plane's wing. Yeah. The separation of the tail assembly from the constellation resulted in immediate loss of control, causing the aircraft to enter a near-vertical terminal velocity dive, plunging into the Grand Canyon at an estimated speed of more than 700 feet per second, which is 480 miles per hour. The constellation slammed into the north slope of a ravine on the northeast slope of Temple Butte, and disintegrated on impact, instantly killing all aboard. An intense fire fueled by aviation gasoline ensued. The severed tail assembly, badly battered but still somewhat recognizable, came to rest nearby. The DC-7's left wing to the left of the number one engine was mangled by the impact and was no longer capable of producing substantial lift. The engine had been severely damaged as well, and the combined loss of lift and propulsion left the crippled airliner in a rapidly descending left spiral from which recovery was impossible. The mainliner collided with the south side cliff of Butte and disintegrated, instantly killing all aboard. Oof. Horrific. 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 It also makes me wonder how many close calls there were before this one. Sure, I bet. Because after this one, they're like, yeah, maybe we should monitor all airspace. (laughs) But before this one, I bet there were close calls where wings were almost hitting, and they're like, whew, that was a close one, guys. Yeah, Yeah, Keep this between you and I. Yeah. (laughs) Copy that, Roger. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's wild. That's uh, and that's and so those were two commercial planes. Two commercial planes Oof. filled with 128 souls, <laughs> and that's hardcore. Now that's uh, yeah, that's pretty punk, if you ask yeah, me. Yeah, that's a that's a midair mashing, mashing, as <laughs> I call it. That's no, that's a DC DC. That was a. <laughs> right? Wasn't that the was plane called D- the DC? That was a DC slam. That was a DC mosh. <laughs> The DC small marsh. Okay, so we made it from Proponosia. It was the f- Brad Pitt disease. Prosopagnosia. All the way to the 1956 Grand Canyon death DC, dive. <laughs> DC the, marsh. The DC marsh death dive. 
Anyway, thank you all for listening. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. I was just going to say, remember to leave a review and a comment on that. Slap a comment on that review, on that five-star review. Slap it on there. Yeah. All right, bye.